0: All right, welcome everybody. We've got another episode of Lifestyle Medicine, and today we've got Daniel Lagner. So, Daniel, thank you for being here, man. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, Daniel, I started, I mean, I, I've known you for some years, right? Because of you're married to Deva. Um, shout out to Deva for oh, all of her awesome yeah. acupuncture. Shout work. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I started following you on social media a little bit and just getting glimmers of what you were doing, and you had a pretty cool dialogue with hunting you had you were hunting small game going on hunting trips but you seemed very well versed in it and I know didn't you do some kind of was it survival type courses that you did as well like outdoor education something or other what was it that yeah you that's were, right what, yeah. Were you, what were you doing yeah. and give us a background on that like you're hunting what you've done just so people kind of know what you're what you've been doing
1: yeah sure I mean I come from a fairly colorful background as it pertains to wilderness things um but what you're referring to was a guide outfit that my brother and i ran for from 2010 till 2017 ended up being about eight seasons um so yeah so we did backpacking trips we did um we started with rock climbing but it ended up pretty quickly after about two years uh going more towards the Wilderness multi-day in the mountains so it ended up turning into mostly backpacking and then in the last four years we did um those three-day wilderness survival courses as well and that's uh, i think what you were referring to which are in the backcountry so you hike in bring minimal gear and but we do bring food and um, and, uh, some shelter and some comforts. And then that lends itself to a really good learning environment where you have the comforts, but you're also in the wilderness and, um, ready to just practice some of those skills. And when you would take people out, what were some of the, the
0: real time skills that people were doing? Can you give us some, for instances, like what are you, yeah, what are you teaching them during, over the course of those three days? What are some of the activities that they go through?
1: Yeah, so that was the beginner course that I was describing, and that one revolved around the four basic elements of survival, which is fire, water, shelter, and food. And so we essentially covered all those four elements in detail categorically, and um, we started out with fire, and so learning how to create fire under certain circumstances that are not straightforward... Um, so you end up walking out of that course with probably five or six ways of creating fire. Wow! Um, yeah, and then this, and then moving on to shelter, um, we had. Um, Can I ask a quick a quick
0: question there about yeah, go ahead.
1: about the fire? So sure,
0: and I'm assuming without the use of matches. Or are you like? Are you taking? Are you teaching right. them? Right.
1: Yeah. So you're teaching them techniques yeah. that don't involve the, the luxury. Well, you'd be surprised. We actually started with matches, right? So we actually yeah. started like Fair okay. Enough. So, what's the simplest version, right? You're in the woods, you have matches, or you have a bake lighter or something like that. How do you start a fire? And you'd be amazed how few people actually understand the basic concepts of. Um, making a fire, how yeah. you know how you use the fuel to um, to really create a good source of heat. Um, you know you need uh, some source of tinder to ignite the kindling to ignite the fuel, and then how do you make that fuel last and how do you manage that? So we started actually with um, uh, proper ignition sources as we see them in the in the front country as we call it,
0: yeah. um,
1: and then we did move on to more primitive methods. Gotcha. Um, we didn't really deal so much with friction methods, which would be your most extreme version of that, because it takes a long time. You could have your own three-day course just for friction fires. Wow. Um, but but we would do demonstrations and indicators of how to, how to use those um, friction methods. But we really focused a lot of time on how to identify and acquire the resources that the, especially coniferous forest around you, are, um, uh, are willing to give you. So being able to um, understand the, what the forest can offer and how to utilize that to make um, fire, even if it's with a flint or spark um, or, uh, or with a lighter, if you have it um but basically understanding the forest more as a place of resource rather than having very specific ways of igniting your fire
0: gotcha. so that
1: was yeah and then we ended up just doing a lot of activities it was like short lecture activity short lecture activity in small groups you know two or three people in a group and 12 people for the whole team and um and then we just move on and the same thing for shelter you know we have like the primitive methods of doing shelter where it's just the resources from the forest and then the, making the shelter of things that you have um, available to you. Maybe you have some clothing, maybe you even have, like, a little tarp or um, or anything, you know, even a backpack um, can be utilized in specific ways for using cordage or stuff like that that could help build shelters. Yeah. Um, so whatever you have available to you, you, we, we basically, the whole course was all around what do you have available and how can you maximize that for survival situations? Right. So, yeah. It was a lot of fun. It sounds like it. I mean, it's,
0: it's, it's relevant as all hell. And I have to ask this question, right? Cause I, and yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate here. People will Go. say, you know, well, we're in modern times, so what's the relevance of knowing how to do this stuff? Right. And I would, you know, the answer seems obvious to me, but what do you, you know, people say that kind of thing. And they're saying like, why should we, why should we have these skills when we have, you know, we have temperature controlled environments and we've got pretty much every luxury we could possibly imagine. What's, yeah, what's your your answer to that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question because... Um, Well, okay. so the short answer is that our survival courses were tailored to those people that recreated in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. So it it really filters out that demographic that's actually going into the wilderness on day hikes, on backpacking trips, on hunting trips. Um, Maybe it's a search and rescue, uh, somebody who's who's a volunteer search and rescue or something like that. Somebody who's um, or a mountain biker. Somebody's frequently exposed to the wilderness and may not have all the resources on their body in, in the event of uh, some kind of scenario that would prohibit them from being able to um, escape the wilderness. Yeah so I mean the simple solution is um, you know somebody really likes day hiking and they bring their day pack and in the day pack is um, a, a bottle of water, a snack, their phone, If they're really smart, an extra layer of clothing, but even often that's not there. And that's really often what people bring, and that's it. Um, Some odds and ends, you know, and and, and that course is perfect for those people. uh, And then all of a sudden they get, you know, locked in by a storm or they get lost and it's dark and they don't know how to navigate or they get off trail and they can't find the trail again. And that's the scenarios that we were dealing with absolutely yeah
0: and i and i can speak i can speak from experience back yeah exactly back in 2009 i got with a buddy of mine we got lost i mean that it happens people like we were hiking and we got lost in the trinity alps so we were supposed to be a day a day trip and it turned into three and we i mean it was a it's a crazy story i'll tell it another time but we ended up having to we ended up Breaking into a like an abandoned cabin out in the middle of the woods, um, we didn't have to like break a window. We left a note with our contact info saying sorry, but we had to get into your place because we were <laughs> wow. sobbing wet and we were out of food. I mean, it was a mess. And I remember, I remember thinking back then. I thought, God, you know, just for people that are like you said, that are recreationally outdoors consistently, it probably behooves most of us to know the basics, right? Just in case yeah. shit hits yeah. the fan and we're stuck somewhere. Um, so yeah, that always stayed with me. That's, that's great that you were doing it. So, yeah. so again, just go through those. It was, it was fire, water, shelter. Mm-hmm. And what was the fourth fire, water, food. shelter, food. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you would take these people out. You said three mm-hmm. days, three day courses, three days. Yeah. yeah. Three days. Um, now in terms of food, um, can we talk about that a little bit? Were you, Were you hunting food for them while they they were out, or did you, you know, were you working with the resources that people (laughs) had? Like, oh, I've got my, you know, power bar. (laughs) Therefore, how do we ration this? Like, how did, yeah, how do you navigate the food scene?
1: Food was one of the things that I probably spent most time on in developing this curriculum because it's the least relevant. Uh-huh. because if you have a 72 hour survival scenario you actually don't need any food at all yeah. so the, the that's kind of the conundrum right how much do you teach on food acquisition when you're in a survival scenario when it really takes 10 days before you really start you know considering that food is the yeah. cause of potential death right. you know you can if you, you'll get weak um, your decision making starts you know, it, it, with the lack of glucose in the brain, your decision making um, definitely gets compromised and things like that. But um, for the most part, food is such a low priority that uh, we generally just did it via lecture and then identified some wild edibles in the wilderness. And that was that was mainly it. We categorized the, the um, ha, you know the the easiest access form of foods as of course the wild edibles are going to be your easiest ones like berries and nettles and um, and then potentially even acorns if those are available um uh, uh, pine cones things like that that are really easy to access and don't take a lot of effort i would put acorns on the side of that because it does take some effort for that yeah um but uh, those are, you know, those are food sources that are not going to run away from you. And right. um, if you know how to identify them and process them, um, then it's a pretty good resource. And then moving on to kind of a more difficult version would be your insects and larvae. And yeah. then from then on would be your amphibians and reptiles. And then maybe you get into rodentia. Uh-huh. And then into the bigger mammals and birds, um, but those you really in a survival scenario, nobody's going to be going after birds or big mammals. <laughs> <Right>. It's just <laughs> right. impossible. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Maybe Although, some insects, but that's about it. It's a bit cumbersome,
0: right, to go after the the big things.
1: Um, Indeed.
0: And so then with um and then for water, yeah. How did you? Yeah. What, what was that piece like?
1: Water to me is the most interesting one because. Um, because, yeah, I mean, in theory, you could go a few days without water and be yep. fine, right? Mm-hmm. You could, in theory, go 72 hours and not really have any major ill effects. But yeah. in about 24 hours, and I've tested this on myself, and in about 24 hours without water, the emotion of thirst is so potent that it can outweigh your um, your thought processes to a point of um, of leading to a very rapid downward spire of um, initial doubts to very rapidly going to full-on despair. Yeah. And so um, it, it's, <clears throat> it's really one of those situations that you have to manage. Oh, we lost you for
0: a second. Are you still there? All right, people, so we lost connection just for a quick second. Hopefully Daniel will kick back on here in a second. Well, let's see what happened. This is the lovely part of of live recording. Um, This is the way it goes, people. (laughs) You're recording a podcast and you're dependent upon the mechanism of Skype, and then it falls apart. But... Let's see if we can get him back on. There you are! Hey, beautiful. Okay, cool, man. Well, we had, a, <laughs> we, we, we had our first little bump. I had to riff there for a minute. Oh man! So you were frozen. Yeah, it's all good. This is, this is like the Sorry way it goes. About that. That's okay. It's not I... your fault. It's just the way, you know, Skype and recording when you're doing this kind of stuff, you're dependent upon it. So it's okay. It's just part of the, part of the package so of distance, distance podcasting. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, so you were, you were talking about the emotion of thirst, which I really like. Yes. I like that phrase quite a bit because I've never thought about it like that. But that's very much. Uh, that's it's very true. I would say, and I've done a little bit of dry fasting, just exploring it from the health perspective, right? You know, just want, mm-hmm. no water for twenty four hours to see what the body does. And I agree, at twenty four hours, there's a very real. I it's not a panic, but there, it's. It, I'm very aware that I want water. Like it's very. Yeah. It's different than, I've fasted for you know. A week without food before and that's right. it's not the same thing not even it's manageable yeah yeah it's
1: a, it's a correct it's an emotion that's more manageable yeah yeah absolutely yeah,
0: but... so so yeah. pick up from where you were because yeah like you said you, fro- mm-hmm. you froze in the uh in the piece yeah. here but um so we were talking about yeah you were saying the emotion of, of thirst and then mm-hmm. the spiral right it's a downward spiral yeah. for people yeah they just start making shitty decisions it sounds like when that hits so, exactly
1: yeah so basically what it comes down to is that yes you can go for 72 hours and not be really of risk of dying if you're a person of average health but like i said in the in, within 24 hours you can get to a point where if you don't have incredible mental strength and will then um you're at very high risk of going to an emotional place that would lead you to despair and then oh. that can inevitably lead you to a place where uh, where you could die because of that. So um, so I did put a lot of focus into water, and the only water is a really complicated thing in the wilderness because if you're in a place and where you don't know where water is, the only things that you can do are look at the terrain. And make some you know some educated assumptions on where you think water will begin to gather mm-hmm. and head for that and then you know we teach about riparian zones and how to find how to locate from high vantage point how to locate areas that are higher moisture than others so just visible in the land and then once you access water finally then you're dealing with pathogens and you're dealing with potential sources that could um, cause further harm to your body. So we taught how to deal with those situations. And um, so, yeah, so there's a bunch of, you know, in the end, what all of the lessons came back down to is be prepared by bringing ways to treat water. And even... A container to carry water because without that that can be troublesome (laughs) right the basics Um, yeah the basic things so that's kind of what it all comes back down to right and i guarantee you that all those people on those courses are now bringing containers yeah you know that they can yeah so yeah it's a it's an interesting topic and it often ended up in a more of a discussion rather than a lecture and and then of course some activities too yeah
0: well, wow. so with those courses, you said those ran from twenty ten to twenty seventeen is that right? The survival courses themselves yep. only for the latter three years oh okay, got it and mm-hmm. so if people will um i take it you you're not doing these anymore at the moment no I'm not Nope. so if people wanted to explore this and they wanted to you know um be a part of something this like Another mm-hmm. type of course like this, where would people look? Like, what resources should people? Where should they kind of point to if they want to explore this and get well versed in? Yeah, basic survival.
1: Uh, I'm happy to say those courses are still running, and uh, they're just not being run by me. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, enough. yeah. So it's treks and tracks, um, T R E K S okay. and T R A C K S. Um, tracks like trekking and tracks like right. animal tracks, right. Um, that's the website and, and those courses are still being offered. Beautiful. Okay. That's a great resource. So that's
0: really good to know.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: well let's segue into, let's segue into the hunting piece because that was, that's been mm-hmm. a big, I've been wanting to pick your brain for past couple of years <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. 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 I, it's just like <laughs> conversations where I'm like, you're always, I've seen you go out, you know, you're posting stuff. Um, I connected you to Daniel Vitalis. Who's got that rewilding yeah. platform and he's really into, Um, you know, foraging his own food, making his own acorn flowers. Um, there's a lot of similar threads between just the way you were living and the stuff that he does. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Like how you got, how you got into hunting. Um, you know, was it a family thing and then how you progress and what you've seen, uh, in terms of the hunting scene? Because I think, I think you used a, what was the term you said? I think, was it a compassionate hunter or... And you had, you, yeah. had, you had something you said, and I thought, I, I want to hear more about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: just, yeah, jump into all that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so hunting, the origin of hunting for me personally, um, is has kind of two avenues. One is a profound one, and one is a really silly, simple one and the profound version is that my grandfather was a very well recognized hunter in austria which is where i grew up Mm. and he was like a known hunter and he um yeah legendary so i grew up in 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 his farmhouse seeing the taxidermy eating the meat seeing him go off you know hunting with his rifles and in Austria it's a completely different thing it's a very high profile mm. very few people do it only landowners are allowed to do it oh wow you have yeah you have to go through rigorous examinations to get your hunting license you have to go through rigorous examination to get your firearms license and then you have to do every year follow-ups on making sure that those licenses um can be reissued every year so follow-ups meaning tests right so lots of respect in the hunting community in austria very very small uh amount of people do it um so that's kind of uh, perhaps um you know lit something in me that i didn't recognize until much much later which was in my early 20s and then here comes the very uh, (laughs) non-profound version that got me into it which is um a buddy of mine in college he was actually um the boyfriend of a friend of mine in college um so i talked to the friend the the girl who we just went to a class together and was chatting and i was like oh where's your buddy and his name was ryan and um and she's like, oh, you know, he went deer hunting for four days in the mountains, and it just kind of like, and that was it. I was like, holy shit, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. And I did, yeah. I was like, he. That's all she said. Was like, oh yeah, he went deer hunting in the mountains for four days, and just that phrase is what uh, is what ended up causing me to initiate this whole interest and, yeah. and caused me to investigate it like i said perhaps there was a spark there from growing up with it um just being surrounded by it but that's what ended up being the catalyst that just catapulted me into the hunting world um and how old yeah, were, how old were you how
0: old were you when that when that uh <laughs> that phrase yeah, was, was, yeah. was uttered in you and, right. you, and you took yeah. the pill what how old I were think, you uh, 22. 22. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A young buck, so to speak. Um, a young buck. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So yeah. from there, um, yeah. Where did you go then? How did that, what happened? And yeah. Yeah. What happened yeah. from that point
1: on? A very slow and arduous process. I also happen to be a huge Tolkien fan. So <laughs> of course, of course, hunting with a bow was for me the only way to go. Right. Um, but I didn't have a bow. did and not you know shoot arrows or anything like that. Yeah. So it ended up really um, with getting the weaponry, becoming familiar with the weaponry, um, and this was all strictly just stick and string bows, recurves. Um, and I would say a good three years passed with me wanting to hunt and considering myself a up-and-coming hunter without ever actually going hunting,
0: mm. and.
1: And it probably took another two years before I consider myself having gone on an official hunt. So from the origin at 22, it probably took until I was in my almost later 20s before I really went on what I would call an official hunt. And let me kind of back up for a minute because there's a lot to what I consider hunting. It's not just... Uh, and I don't have anybody around me who wants. I don't have a, somebody who can take me out. This is all coming 100% for my own interest and, and, and drive. Yeah. Um, what I consider like going hunting requires a lot of um, skills, a lot of layers of knowledge. And uh, I really wanted to be well-versed in all of those before I would go out and consider taking the life of an animal. And this is all, uh, so I have a master's degree in wildlife biology, so I've studied animals, I've dedicated a very large portion of my life to conservation and environmental science as it pertains to animals. And so animals are incredibly important to me. Um, They play a a huge role in my life um, daily now and have always. Um, so before I wanted to go out and actually hunt something, it was thoroughly important to me to be um, not an expert, but very well versed in all the layers. And that's
0: yeah. knowing
1: your your weapons, knowing how to use them well, um, and then having the understanding of uh, the wilderness, knowing how to navigate in the woods, knowing how to... Um, uh, pack your gear so being an expert on actually what you need to be out there in the woods for a week 10 days at a time so you need to be an e- a gear expert too, um, Knowing how to manage your food and weight on your pack because if you go out there and you carrying a 50-pound pack and you shoot a 130-pound buck, you're gonna have a lot of trouble getting that back. So to say understand- the least right. God. Yeah so understanding those kind of variables um, and then, of course, understanding how, where to go hunting based on regulations and zones and licenses and tags. Um, and then finally, when you're outfitted and you have your weapon and um, you have your tag and you know where to go and you know when to go and you finally feel like you have the skill set to do it, <laughs> and you're standing out there in your camel. Yeah. then you still have to find the game right right, and right. You have to understand animal movement patterns and habits and what they do when and um how they travel from one area to the next and uh what are the highest chances of you getting close enough with your weaponry to actually take a life ethically and quickly mm-hmm. and and then when you get to that point then what do you do with a dead animal how do you, yeah, how do you then field dress it and process it and break it down and pack it out and deal with the meat that you can't pack out and and then have to come back for later? Um, and then you finally make it back. How do you then deal with large chunks of meat that are potentially not cooled down yet? um and and how do you process that in your kitchen how do you make sure that you can actually have that meat be high quality in a year from now two years from now three years from now right and then how do you cook it so like all these layers right like the more i looked yeah. into it the more skills there were for me to learn so it really took a long time for me to um to make it out there and feel like i was actually okay hunting yeah and killing something well, it's, I mean, God, right? So just as you're going through it,
0: um, I mean, I think some of these threads have probably been in people's minds if they're, if they thought about hunting and some of them had not, I mean, a few, as you were saying, I thought, God, there's so, there's so much to this that you do yeah. need to be well-versed in. There's a lot to consider. Um, so when you've, when you started getting into this process and you started, um, you know, you had all your skills, you got good with your weapons and you actually <laughs> started like tracking and started doing this stuff and started hunting game Mm -hmm. when you're out there so yeah it's a two I guess it's a two-pronged question is there is there a connection to the land and just being in nature for that long that you begin to love just because you're outside and doing what you love but then also does it just get exhausting and tiring when you're not able to I'm sure you've had hunts that have not gone particularly well what's the what's the harmonizing balance you know like how much of it is therapeutic and how much of it is just gritty hard work is -hmm. there what's that dynamic like when you're out
1: there Yeah. yeah it's a really good question and one of the foundations of hunting i would say is what you're describing there because you have moments that are just absolutely magnificent that you um really only experience when you're hunting um which are amplified by hunger because you can't really bring a lot of food because you have to carry you have to consider the potential of bringing out meat so every time i'm out there hunting i'm typically hungry um i'm bringing minimal food usually freeze dried meals for the evening and then uh, very simple um snack style lunches for the day like energy bars and Mm -hmm. um you know high fat jerky things like that um so being hungry and being in the wilderness is a while looking for game to hunt is a very potent combination to heighten your senses, right? Yeah. So like you're out there with a really heightened uh, sense of everything. So that then, if you have like a beautiful sunrise or you have, um, you know, a, a two squirrels like um, you know playing with each other or something that's yeah. kind that would be like really kind of sweet and almost profound under normal circumstances if you're standing next to your car um, when you're in a situation where in the backcountry you've worked for it you're hungry you're heightened it amplifies everything up to the next level yeah but so so that that kind of plays into kind of like the beauty aspect where Mm -hmm. you can really find incredibly profound moments of appreciation of being where you are that is definitely paired with suffering no question about it yeah you're you know (laughs) and, and being okay with discomfort is one of the most uh important virtues of being a hunter if you're not okay with being uncomfortable you will not be a hunter guaranteed that's a make or break situation yeah um because it's absolutely inevitable even if the hunt goes really really well you're still waking up very very early in cold conditions because that's when the seasons for big game is Mm -hmm. especially if you're hunting in the mountains um, you know inevitably you're going to be sitting still very cold often in in variable weather because fall time can bring that in the mountains um, so you're really set up for a recipe for terrible <laughs> suffering, <laughs> and right. you have to be okay with that. If you're not okay with that, it, that's it. It's a make or break. So you go right. out there knowing that the hunger, the the three three thirty a.m. wake up call when it's sideways sleet outside, and putting on your wet boots and getting out there. You know the combination of that. Um, It it really brings everything, you know, and then knowing that you're you're probably going to have these profound moments of peace and tuning in that um, you just can't get under other circumstances.
0: Yeah, well, and so I know right now, like, there is half the li- listening base is like, "Well, I am out. Like, I am so not doing this. <laughs> right. right. that sounds horrible. Thank you, wonderful yeah. podcast. And I am out now. Tough. Yeah. But then there is going to be a whole sle- slew of people like myself, where like it's in- it's intriguing. Right now, it's like, yeah. ooh, like, there is some there is something here to be challenged by too. Which, you know, oh, yeah, uh, like a lot of guys like a good challenge. So there's the there's that piece right there's I can tell right away it's like oh yeah like this is very difficult I'm glad I asked that because it sounds yeah. like there's a lot that could go wrong and you're going to be uncomfortable but you know I wanted to just support that because I think a lot of people do challenging things um, you know I would say that adage that you said you know be, being okay with being uncomfortable
1: yeah
0: that's good in any aspect of life you know being yeah, being learning how to be uncomfortable. Yeah. in life and being okay with it I think is such a good um, it's a good thing to to practice right just to be in touch with and I think if we can pursue activities that do that for us I think because it's all training right in the in the larger context um, you know I'm not sure do you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast at all? I do so he's sure. talked about that with jujitsu right he's like uh-huh. he's like it's so challenging it's so hard he's like but you're essentially being mock killed repeatedly through right. a, through a class and sometimes right. you're, you're put into very uncomfortable positions where someone smaller than you uh, just has better skill and, and it's just a terrible feeling to, to, to have that hit you, you know. So yeah. as you're talking about this, it just makes me think about putting ourselves and practicing things that are life-giving and good for us, but that are uncomfortable. You know, there's some merit in that, in the in the bigger picture. So that's pretty cool. So with um okay so with the struggles right of of the hunting scene and knowing that it can be really hard and really difficult um talk a little bit about yeah so once you've you've had your beautiful moments you've had your shitty moments um let's say you bring an you're lucky enough to bring an animal down and you're Mm -hmm. talking uh let's let's circle back to that ethical uh the ethical kill right so of course there's going to be vegans that are very triggered right there's no way to ethically kill an animal of course there's that whole demographic but Talk to me about what that means to you, and talk about the ethical killing piece because um, you're going to be taking a life. What's that mean by your by your standard?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, you're really hitting the you know one of the heart of the controversies of hunting, right? Yep. Um, which which is really it's a great thing to talk about because it raises a lot of really important issues, um, and even that pertain to other things in our society. Yep. Um, so. I love everything about hunting. Um, I love the preparation. I love the gear. I love the weaponry, um, the, the wilderness aspect, the um, the field dressing and the cooking and the eating and the sharing. I hate the killing. Yeah. I hate the part where you have to kill the animal. Um, it's the one piece. It's a minuscule moment. Yeah. Uh, a- almost infinitely small Mm -hmm. um, because it has to be a decision rather than you know it ends up being a physical action but it has to be the moment where you make the choice so it's at almost like the speed of a momentary decision yeah Um, and that moment is really um, very powerful and hugely emotional Mm -hmm. Um, and it's you know and then you have to commit to it um and and see it through um and it's a really awful piece you know that i to me i really really don't like but it is a piece of hunting it's part of hunting it it, it's the it's the the duality right it's um that's just how it goes a package deal if you want to be a hunter and acquire your own meat um, you have to kill an animal. And to do it in a way that is ethical and um, and the most conscious as possible, um, there are several things to it. One very practical, and that's choosing the right weaponry and knowing how to use it. Right? Mm. Very practical thing. I, ch- I, I killed a deer with um, a recurve bow one time, and I immediately bought a rifle and mm. to me uh, and this is an argument that i love having um and that can be argued and a valuable sides of the argument but um i'm I, I feel very confident that a rifle with the uh precision and the amount of force um and the damage that it does internally in a body um are gonna be a faster way of death Mm-hmm. and that's one of the things you have to consider as a hunter what is going to so you if we unpack your question yeah. a little bit and we dive into this uncomfortable place yep. of of killing yeah i've i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and it's like i said it's a very uncomfortable thing to to consider and i have to be honest with you i don't think i've ever actually spoken about this what will kill an animal the quickest way yeah and you have to think about a lot of things there Mm -hmm. Um, so how is it gonna be unnoticed so that there's no stress to the animal how is it gonna happen in the most precise way so that whatever whatever thing that you're firing at that animal will land in its body in the correct place and create the most amount of damage while still keeping some meat intact it's mm-hmm. another consideration I always do as well um, and and have um, the least amount of uh, time for death right um, so those are the things that I've I've considered and with that I've gone to rifle I'll never kill a, you know a, a large animal with um, with a bow anymore mm-hmm. uh, because I don't feel like it does it as quickly as a rifle Um mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the pieces. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other is that every, every time you're in a position while you're hunting where you're able or you have the opportunity to take the life of an animal, that is, you see one, you're close enough um, that you can never, ever take a shot unless you're 100% confident that that shot will kill the animal. So that means... There's um, potentially brush in between you and the animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a very good way to rest your weapon so that you have a still shot. Um, you know, those are some of the considerations for making a clean kill. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about. It really is. I mean, it's it's um,
0: it's a it's a it's a, it's a big topic, right? There's a lot. There's a lot. Here. A lot there. There's a lot. There's a lot here. Is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's so many, and it's a metaphor. For a lot of other things, like you said, it's very poignant in terms of the relationship between other things in our society and yes. how we think about things. And I think there's this there's this big, right, the contention, which I can understand. You know, I was vegan for a while. Um, it didn't work for me. I was vegan for, I think, a year and a half or two in my early 20s. Um, oh, wow. And I, I did it. Um, you know, I went back to eating meat. And this whole notion of, of taking... I think there's the piece, if we eat meat, there's a reasonable... And I've talked to a lot of people, people that do eat meat. It's pretty reasonable for the meat eaters. When I have this discussion, people say, if we're going to eat meat, it's pretty reasonable to know what it takes to kill an animal. If you're going mm-hmm. to do that, if you're going to eat chicken, you should know what it's like to kill a chicken. If you're going to eat cow, yeah. you should know what it's like to kill a cow. If you're going to eat deer, mm-hmm. you should know what it takes and what it requires. And um, a lot of people... You know they do. They they. It seems reasonable to the meat eaters. I had, you know, the first time, I, I I had never seen a chicken slaughtered up until about it wasn't that many years ago. I saw it happen. You know, from beginning to end, and it was done quickly. Um, and I remember watching it, and I remember just thinking, God, it's so gruesome. You know, just mm-hmm. watching an animal be killed. It, it mm-hmm. was fast. Um. But, you know, putting it in boiling water for a second to pluck the feathers and, you know, taking Mm -hmm. the gallbladder out and just gutting it and tearing it apart. And you're just like, Jesus Christ. brutal, right. And I felt bad and everyone was just, you know, like, oh, man. And the guy that was doing it was just very, like you said, very skilled, knew exactly Mm -hmm. what to do. And an hour later, we were eating it. It was chicken soup. You know, we were having chicken. And I remember everyone was eating it and everyone was like, wow, this is really good. But there was also a level of reality to the meal. There was a certain mm. level of acknowledgement and it wasn't just like everyone was all shits and giggles, right? There was a presence, right. to, there was a presence to the people eating the food because we had all watched it, uh, be killed. So I think there was a, there was a certain level of gratitude that we all had and it actually made me, I don't know. It it made it more of a, there was more presence. That's the best way I can say it. I just, yeah. felt more present for the meal, more grateful for it. And, um, and and we all thanked the chicken. I mean, there was definitely that right. piece, like thank you, chicken. You know, for yeah, for giving your life so we can eat. So, when you you know, what do you what do you say? I mean, I, I'm sure it's not. You probably had this conversation. You know, the people that are diehard vegans, right, who are just like mm-hmm. taking life as cruel in any capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they they argue from that place how do you navigate that terrain? Um, and I know you're not like in a political stage, you know, defending this and yeah. you know, you're not like this huge public figure who's, you know, Mr. Hunter of the world. But when you've mm-hmm. had these conversations, you know, a person to person, how do you navigate that, that dialogue? Like what do you say yeah. and how do you, yeah, how do you keep your stance? Like what do you, yeah, what do you do?
1: Absolutely, yeah, I mean, and Honestly, I love talking about this. Yeah, me too. Um, it, 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 because it, ha- it its a very potent, controversial topic. There's yeah. no way around it. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so like, like you were saying, you tried to be vegan for a while. It didn't work for you. Yep. Um, I didn't even get to that point. I I love eating meat. I, yeah. It does um, really good for me and my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, ninety-seven percent of Americans. Uh, I, I'm there with them on uh, being a meat eater and but I'm also you know um, I'm also a, a biologist and a, and a lover of animals so that puts me in a tight spot that puts yeah. me in a conundrum right yeah you know, I have a, a profound appreciation for animals but I also want to eat them <laughs> and right. I recognize the health right so it's a tricky place to be with, to be as a person who considers those things, right? Yeah. Um, so the things that I would say are one that, like I said, I love eating meat. Yeah. The healthiest way, and by healthy I mean uh, most sustainable um, for environmental purposes, um, the, the quickest, most ethical way. Um, and the quality of meat and the, life of the quality of the life of the animal, there's no question that if you're going to eat meat, the best way to do it is by hunting, um, because you're going to you're, you're not supporting a commercial industry of raising animals in a terrible industry, right? Yep. And, under terrible conditions, etc. Sure. Um, we all know that story. Mm-hmm. So you're not supporting that. Right. So you're not putting any infrastructure or money towards in, into that direction. Um, you know the habitat and the environment that that animal lives in because you're standing in it while right. you're searching for that animal. Right. You know how the kill happens. So hopefully, if you do it ethically, um, then um, uh, then you know it's going to be fast and humane. Um, you know, for I would say. Um, the death of an animal uh, in the circumstance of hunting are uh, time-wise from when the shot is fired to when it's completely dead, um, you know, always, you know, less than 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's really a matter of, of seconds and it has no idea. It's going to happen, and that to me is the big piece. Whereas in commercial meat industry, that's not the case, right? Um, Or for the most part, especially for the larger animals. Yes. So the ethical killing piece, Um, and then once the once the animal becomes meat after it's dead, and has been appreciated, um, then it only passes through my hands it doesn't pass through hundreds of other hands that have packaged it and put it in you know into other you know packages and then froze it in and transformed trans yeah. you know put you know what i'm saying you know? Yeah, know and the, processing, broader, right? the all the processing the Who large the large have,
0: scale processing right yeah
1: and how much time that takes and you know um all the all that stuff goes away in the hunting process so it passes through two hands right mine right and and it goes directly into my refrigerator um so in short if you're gonna eat meat you know hunting is gonna be the best way
0: yeah
1: a vegan will say well don't take the life of an animal um just don't don't do it Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's one of the more, this is an area that it gets a little bit blurry because uh, unfortunately, um, and what I wish would be a little bit more common knowledge, is that for us to acquire any food, if it's meat or not, many animals die. Um, Wheat fields and corn fields are full of life, including deer. Um, you know, ground nesting birds, you have um, rodents, you know, many, many rodents. You have um, deer that fawn their young there. You have um, all kinds of life that happen in these um, huge agricultural areas that uh, that die, and and it's shown by those machines that harvest wheat and corn and soy and yeah. Things that we all appreciate as as vegan foods. You have um, vultures and birds of prey Traveling behind these machines because they know that when those machines harvest that that those plants there's gonna be um, a lot of you know a lot of dead animals there as well, right? So that's one of the pieces that I think needs to be understood as well is that that um, animal death is incredibly widespread, unfortunately, yeah. and it doesn't just apply to people who eat meat. And this is
0: this great points, really good points, and a couple things come up. You know, this, this has been brought up. I've heard this in conversation when people talk about this. Um, that, and this is a hard one, right? <clears throat> building a hierarchy, right? People will say, well, like animal life is, you know, it's, it's, you know, life is life and you know, you shouldn't take it ever. And I, you know, I'm always brought back to that thing of like, I would say like, I kind of disagree. I don't want to say that I'm superior to a cow, but on some fundamental level, I would say like, actually I am. If, If someone said a person is going to be executed or an animal you know i I would very quickly say i'm gonna go for the animal it's just the human life is is a different thing it's in a different category than that but then immediately right then that snowballs into you know you know i'm an oppressive patriarchal male who just wants to dominate and kill and therefore you know what i mean and things that that you're immediately put into that category and it's like like you said it's a gray area it's not just a black and white and um Interesting point too, Daniel Vitalis, who I think uh, you know you've looked into a little bit. He was vegan for many years, and mm. he started to become uh, he didn't feel well. Right, that a lot of the typical I would say by long term standards, people who do veganism, um, he fell into that category. He was getting pale, he was cold all the time, hungry all the time, had lost a lot of weight, didn't feel particularly good, didn't look particularly good, and he um, and he said he what he kind of got back to was he realized um, he said there were no like what Weston Price talked about, um, there's no multi-generational uh, vegan cultures in the world. Like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Gen- oh, really? Ten generations. He's like, there's they don't exist. There's not a ten single multi-generational culture, especially like indigenous. You know, or, you mm. know, or, that are at their roots. Um, he said they don't like they don't. It's never happened in history, right? Yeah. There's never been this thing where people. Have excluded animal products to the point where, as a philosophy or lifestyle, it's almost Mm. like a product of affluence and you know of modern of modern times that we can even do that. I mean, I remember traveling in different parts of the world too, and like the idea of veganism to people in those parts of the world were like, "What? Like, why would why would you do that? Like, you want to starve? You want to? Do you want to? That doesn't even make sense." You know, it was such a weird luxury, sort of, that they Mm -hmm. that, that if you have if there's enough money and processing of foods to you can make you know fake plant foods kind of yeah and make them taste like meat they were like I guess but otherwise you know it it just doesn't make any sense so with this um, I really liked your point though I want to touch on that you said that so the ethical killing right the ethical Mm -hmm. taking of life which is a very difficult thing to think about right Um, I love I love animals and that idea of make basically it's you know ending it quickly Right, it's like you could definitely argue, right? It's not ethical to kill, but if you're gonna kill, then within right. that within that bracket of killing, there there is there is some there's a spectrum there of um, it being more compassionate, right? And and yes, and, um, the animal suffering less, right, or less duration of time. So let me ask you this: in a lot of the native cultures, when they would bring an animal down, they would pray. That that was very common. When hunters would go out, Native Americans, I read about this when they would take the buffalo down, which was a huge staple um, of their diet. And when they would take the buffalo down, it was immediately the first thing they would do was gather around the buffalo, say a prayer, they would bless the bear, bless the land, have gratitude for it, and then from there they would you know begin to process the animal. So um, have you, I guess when you do when you do take an animal down, either internally or externally, do you do anything to acknowledge the life of the animal? Do you have any kind of process that you go through? Do you say something to yourself? What's that like?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one one thing to like kind of step back is that I'm a bit of a unique hunter. Mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, I would say I'm not a very... Accurate reflection of the main U.S. hunting community.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So, just to kind of put that out there. Yeah. Um, but yes, I have a huge amount of appreciation for um, the life of an animal, and perhaps even more so the population of an animal species. Um. And when an animal, when I walk up to a dead animal. I always lay my hand on the on the animal, and I just give my thanks for its life and that it has now become food that will feed my family. It's it's short. It's never more than 15 seconds, mm-hmm. um, but it's always a moment. Always, always, inevitably. It's yeah. almost like automatic, mm-hmm. um, where I just give my appreciation, and I'm a very scientifically minded person Mm -hmm. um and um i don't i don't believe that um that animal is now running in the fields beyond in the universe somewhere Mm -hmm. far away Mm -hmm. it's really for myself I, i do i do that for myself so that i can acknowledge what i've done and that i can relish in the combination of emotions that are um pride and sorrow and uh they're all mixed together right you have this you have happiness and sorrow and you have um this deep appreciation for uh the work you've put into getting to the point where you now have your hand on a dead animal yeah um combined with the realization that you've just killed an animal yeah and it's just a very um it's a very potent mix of emotions that i sit in that are just that i just i i surround myself i dive into that yeah for just a few seconds and then i have to get to work
0: right 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 because time (laughs) is precious right with that yeah absolutely yeah there's not you can't have an hour ceremony right right um well so I, I the second question to this is uh yeah. and maybe a personal one for you but have you when you first started
1: doing this did you have a point where you cried uh ever for taking an animal I have one time yeah. um it, I haven't I'm not a crier mm-hmm. um so it's just you know I, I don't um I don't cry frequently mm-hmm. um so uh, i actually don't really cry very much at all mm. maybe i should try doing it more <laughs> yeah um, it's good for probably health. It, it, it's, it's very good, good for you yeah yeah, yeah. crying's Crang, yeah. good yeah it, yeah um so i took it upon i, I was wondering if this is going to come up <laughs> and, it, and it has it has um here we are <laughs> uh here we are um last year 2018 i took it upon myself I made a long decision, and and my wife, Deva, bless her heart, mm. has talked to me a lot about this before that decision was made. Yeah. Uh, during the decision-making process, I want to hunt a bear, and mm. that's that. It, it was a long process. Yeah. Perhaps years, but consciously, you know, subconsciously, but consciously, um, it was many months of should I, shouldn't I, and then going through the controversy of. Well, why would I shoot a, a buck, which in my opinion is one of the most magnificent animals in the woods. Mm-hmm. And I would hesitate to shoot a bear. Mm-hmm. Or why, And then why not just talk about why would I shoot a squirrel, mm-hmm. but then not a bear. Why would I value a right. life of an animal in a different scale, especially when you're talking about large animals like right. deer animals. Um, and so I delved into kind of those controversies I anyway to fast forward a little bit I, I, I decided to do it um, I got um, I got a tag and went up north to Medicino into the Trinity Alps um, and I did a lot of homework um, I did a lot of work when I got into the field and I ended up finding and killing a bear mm-hmm. and um, it was it was a really hard hunt because I was on my own, and I was quite remote, and um, it was a heavy animal, yeah. <laughs> clearly. Um, and it was a fairly dangerous, um, you know event for me to partake in. Yeah. And after I did my normal thing and, and I felt you know, kind of calm about the whole thing, And then when I, so I had to, I had to field dress the animal there and and I had to do two loads back to camp, which was a very steep hike back to my base camp. Mm -hmm. So I had to to pack the animal in two loads back to base camp. After the set, luckily I shot the animal in the morning. So I had all day to process the animal down, do everything really consciously and take my time with it. And then bring one load to base camp, come back, pick up the next load, bring it back to base camp, and have everything there. At around 9.30 at night or so, when I sat around the fire, the whole thing just set in. That um, uh, Maybe it was a combination of going through the decision process of actually killing an animal, um maybe it was my emotional relationship with bears Mm -hmm. maybe it was that bears eat blueberries and scratch their backs on trees and so do I you know maybe it's this relatability (laughs) right right whatever it is you know I don't know what exactly it was but yeah I I cried heavily that night yeah um alone around the fire (laughs) yeah um very intense you know very intense uh, emotional experience for sure and why i still don't know i still don't exactly know why yeah um but yeah definitely have shed a tear yeah
0: a lot yeah yeah one yeah. and i asked um uh, a close friend of mine who has hunted a lot of deer he said you know for the first three years when he got into hunting deer he had a very similar relationship the way you have with bears, right? He, you know, there's an affinity there um, mm-hmm. for, for the deer, though, in his case. And he said for the first three years, you know, he would only hunt because I was actually surprised to hear how long like an entire deer lasts. It's quite a bit of meat, you know, if it's a it's a big mm-hmm. animal. And he was just feeding himself. Um, but the deer he would take, he said, the first three years, every time he'd take the deer down, he would cry. You know, it was just part of it. He said after three years, it wow. kind of got out of his system but he said every 3 years and he's a real um kind of like you he is a kind of you know a rough mountain man kind of type you know he's not like a not a not not a soft person would by any stretch of the means but he said it was just like every time he's like he just felt he said part of it was um yeah there was a reverence of respect and he said it and just the harsh reality of killing something you know he said it's yeah. it's ugly it's bloody your hands smell like blood Your you know stuff gets on you it's a messy process it's it's just very ugly when you're in it and I was always uh, surprised by that. But he said after three years, then he said he he still said his prayer, you know, over the animal. Mm-hmm. But the the yeah. tears stopped. But it took him three years, you know, for all. So for it's intense. Every deer yeah. that he took um, during that time. So when you're out, um, yeah, let's talk about that. So you're tracking an animal like a like a like a bear. So mm-hmm. I mean, I have. It's almost hard to ask the questions because there's so many cropping up in my head about <laughs> the process. So I'm just going to start grabbing the ones that I that come through. But if you're hunting an animal, um, you know, that size, uh, that could potentially, I mean, bears, right? Bears are dangerous. Mm. <laughs> like they could they could definitely make a move on you. Um, when you're hunting something that big, how do you, yeah, essentially, when, how big was the bear? <clears throat> the bear that you took down, how big was it?
1: It's hard to say, you know, because I don't have any means of measuring yeah. out there, but um, it was, probably shy just under 300 pounds 275 probably yeah somewhere in that range okay yeah
0: so with an animal that big um as you how do you walk me through what that process actually looks like how do you feel dress a, yeah a bear out in the middle of the well, woods.
1: Yeah, yeah right yeah it's just you and the you and the the right. bear habitat yeah right like what do you do um so to put it in perspective yeah I was hunting black bears, mm-hmm. and black bears are um, far less aggressive yeah. and much smaller yeah. than their larger cousin, the brown bear. Yeah, um, and internally, you know, the, as we know them internally, the grizzly bears and right. you know the, that's all subspecies of the brown bear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those that's kind of a bit of a different category. So the okay. black bears, um, they're a lot safer to hunt. Mm -hmm. that said they could really injure you quite a bit if you're not careful yeah um the circumstances of risk are that you um approach a bear that has cubs yeah um and it's it doesn't see any other way of protecting its cubs other than injuring you Mm -hmm. um Which admittedly is rare that Mm -hmm. one, you have to find that situation and then two, you have to be in a situation where the mother, the sow, is then so threatened by you and has no options of escaping other than hurting you. Right. Very rare for that to happen. Yeah. Um, Another one would be you approaching a bear that's on a food source. Um, potentially it has come across another dead animal or it has killed a fawn or something like that and Mm -hmm. you come across it Um, or you've injured it and it isn't dead and you're approaching it right other than that there's really no circumstance where you have to be at risk. So it's not gonna, yeah. it's not gonna hide behind a tree and attack you. It's not gonna um, see you and try and hurt you because y- it feels threatened by you. Gotcha. Um, they're definitely fleeing animals um that don't want to have anything to do with humans if they can if they can help themselves yeah so you know let's let's keep it in that kind of perspective so in, in those circumstances yes i was out there alone yes i was in bear habitat yeah um but really the risk of me getting attacked by a bear were very 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 low okay yeah. That's good context.
0: So um, yeah, that kind of puts yeah. some, some of the <laughs> I mean the, yeah, the natural innate fear that I felt for you. <laughs> I was like, of course, damn, like yeah. yeah, it's like wow man. Um okay, so once the animal so the black bear, you know, you've taken the black bear um down and then yeah. when you approach it and you realize it's dead, what's the first mm-hmm. thing you do? Like what do you actually what's the first step in taking dismantling that animal yeah. of that
1: size? Is it's the same thing you would do to a squirrel. <laughs> um, you know, it's all very applicable uh, to similar animals. Of course, the nitty-gritty changes based on the animals. So, you know, um, a black bear has a very thick hide. Uh-huh. Um, a squirrel has a very thin hide. Um, but the initial process is to get it into a position where you can where you can process it um, so if you're on a really steep slope with a bunch of brush around you you may have to move it or, or do something so that you can actually handle it right um, or if it's submerged in a creek or something like that so you have right. to position it into a place where you can work on it mm-hmm. which can be very challenging in and of itself yep um, in my situation, it was in a place where I could just access it and work on it. Mm-hmm. The first thing, the first thing you do is start working the hide away from uh, on the abdomen. You start working the hide away from the ab- base of the abdomen, mm-hmm. and um, just being really careful to separate the hide from the the base muscle in the abdomen, and you work your way up towards the sternum. Okay, and. And you don't even go into the body cavity quite yet um you just kind of work away that so that there's no hair that will contaminate because bear hair comes off really easily um so you want to try and and it's also quite um you know it's quite stiff Mm -hmm. um and uh unlike deer hair which is a lot finer and shorter yeah um you really want to try and avoid that for meat contamination so just to back it up the bear is now meat to me yeah. so now once the bear is dead it's no longer um i i you have to move remove yourself emotionally from it being a living bear that was frolicking around in the meadows yeah it is now your responsibility to turn that into a food source so that's how i deal with it emotionally yeah because if you get hung up on like okay i'm cutting open a bear i'm cutting open a bear then you won't get very far you yeah. have to uh, you have to compartmentalize some of those emotions, yeah. and you know, l- cry it out later in the, around the fire uh, at yeah. nine thirty at night. Yeah, um, fair enough. But right <laughs> then, you have to be, you know, you have to you have to um, step into the reality of the work that has to get done. Yep. So, to kind of bring it back. Um, and then, so essentially the main, the, the main initial objective is to remove the hide and expose the muscles. And then from there, you have to remove the intestines and a lot of the other um, uh, organs that you can't use, especially with bear. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. bear you can't use, um, a lot of times bear kidneys you can't use. Why, unless it's a why, is that? Bear. Why, why is that, why is that? Because they are omnivores and they'll eat potentially carry-on, dead animals. Um, they eat a lot of very um, intense foods that uh-huh. the liver has to deal with um, because of their omnivorous diet. Uh-huh. Uh, um, luckily, where I hunt, I don't have to deal with this, but they potentially could eat garbage or… Um, uh, right. You know but but the the highest the the biggest one is is meat right if they eat dead if they eat dead animals that they find Mm -hmm. which they often um that's going to be a liver and a kidney that takes you know that that has to work hard Mm -hmm. and over the years that's going to take a toll on the organ and it comes across and you can have very high levels of vitamin a you can have very which in in too high in too high doses sounds healthy but in too high doses will kill you yeah um and uh uh, you can have uh, if anything just a very pungent badly tasting you know Uh organ yeah um so that's that's kind of how it affects the kidneys and the and the and the liver when you get into an older animal got it um
0: oh we lost you again we'll see if you pop back up here Just give it a second here. It should be popping back up. So for the people, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. All right, cool. Yeah, we had a little freeze again, so no worries. Man. It happens. Yeah, it's just the nature of the beast, man. The nature of the beast, yeah. So so you were saying, though, um, so where were we? Yeah, the the hearts you can eat. Yeah, the heart. Okay,
1: so the organs, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 the organs. Um, the heart is just a muscle, right? I mean, yeah. it's a, it's an organ, but it's muscle yeah. tissue. So uh-huh. um, out of a bear, you would really, uh, unlike some other animals where I take as much of it as I possibly can, with bears, you have to be a lot more careful. Um, mm. So, you know, as, as far as internal um, organs go, you really only want the heart. Um, yep. And uh, so, yeah, so the main objectives initially are to remove the hide, um, remove the uh, internal organs, um, separate out the hind quarters and and the front quarters. So take off the rear legs and the front legs. Mm -hmm. um, And then uh, uh, remove the head as well um, after, you know, this is all after the hide is gone. um, And then split it in. And then you have the multiple pieces. You have your two hind quarters, your two forequarters. You have what's called the saddle, which is the centerpiece, which has the ribs and the back straps. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then you have the head if you want to keep that, which I do. And then uh, rolled up in a bundle, the hide. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are your elements after you've field dressed, uh, field dressed your animal. And do you still,
0: so when you keep the head and the hide, mm-hmm. d- did you actually keep it as like a rug? Do you, is that, did you keep it as you have it?
1: I have it. Yeah, it's yeah. a rug. Yeah, yeah. wow, yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, so the head, the head and the hide, I did two two separate things with. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 hide I turned into a rug. Um, mm-hmm. With the um, and I had that done by a taxidermist because yeah. I just didn't have the time to do it. I yeah. do have the skill to do it, um, which I've done with other hides, but. Um, I didn't have the, the time and I wanted to, wanted it to be right. Yeah. So I sent that to a taxidermist and for a few hundred dollars it came back as a ruck. Yeah. Um, and the, the head um, I ended up taking the so the head meaning the skull. The mm-hmm. fur of the head was still on the hide. So ears and nose and all that was still on the hide. Yep. And then the head itself is now just a skull with the tongue and the brain and stuff inside. Mm-hmm. Um, that I kept. I, I removed the tongue. I take that as mm-hmm. and And then I bring the skull back um to clean the skull i boil it down i remove the tissue Mm -hmm. um there's two very large muscles right up against the skull that attach to the top um Mm -hmm. those can be eaten um obviously i take the tongue which is an incredibly um, high quality uh piece of meat um and uh and then i boil down clean up the rest of it um, of the skull and then I clean everything out with some special tools and then um, And then I bleach it in hydrogen peroxide um, And then you know spray it with uh, protective like a uh-huh. urethane or a shack yep. and you have yourself a beautiful Museum quality skull. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what I do. With skull skull on hide
0: Yeah impressive um, just yeah the, the process I mean I I can understand now as you're going into it I mean I mm. I think fundamentally a lot of us know there's a lot to hunting when you when, if you think about it for any amount of time even if you're green to the topic like myself right. who has who haven't done it I think it's even as you project into it you can see there's a lot but as you're talking about it there's so much, and I can see why it took you so long. You said it was years, right, before you years. even went out and thought about, like, okay, I'm going to, you know, go out and do this. Um, so when when, you t- when you're doing this and you, um, the, the carrying it out part, that's the part that always, I, I've, I've mm-hmm. seen people, there's a couple questions that come up. When you're bringing an animal out of a hunting scenario, right, You've you've taken the animal down, um, so there's two parts to this question. One, what do you actually carry it in back to base camp? That's one part of the question. And then two, I'm thinking about the stuff that these animals probably come into contact with. I'm thinking ticks, I'm thinking poison oak, all over their fur, that kind of thing. So those two questions, how do you, yeah. how do you navigate those two pieces?
1: Yeah, we're getting into the the we're getting into the weeds so you speak yeah you know, so to speak uh, <laughs> yeah. like the realities yeah oh well, here we
0: go again reconnecting sorry viewers this is the way it goes with Skype uh, <laughs> There we go. Hey, you're back. All right. <laughs> I've no idea why it's happening. This is like it never happens this much. Again. But, but so yeah. the two the two so, pieces in the in the weeds you said Yeah, in the weeds. So, so what do, what do you do? Yeah. How do you So the you carrying
1: the carrying out piece is the simple part. Okay. Because um, you put the the meat into what's called a game bag, which is Okay. It's a glorified pillowcase. Essentially, it's like a nylon sack with uh, drawstring um, that allows the meat to have aeration, but no access from bugs. So flies that lay eggs. Um, So then you you take those and you put those in your backpack or you strap them to the outside. That's that's the kind of simple reality of carrying out meat. Um, The other part is luckily um simple to deal with but you got to have a stomach for it because yeah a lot of these animals especially in california where it's warm and brushy and you know they are i mean there are some serious parasites out there um so yeah lots of ticks um depending on where you are um you have uh um, bot larvae <laughs> that live, uh, you know, bot flies. Yeah. yeah. Lay, and, Under yeah, the skin, so right? In, the, in our case in California, it's actually in the nostril. So they lay oh, an egg here and then brutal. the thing, wa- yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Um, but that's a regular thing for deer. Yeah, I mean, almost I would say, you know, three out of five deer have a bot larvae in their nostrils. That, wow, you have that to, much, yeah, yeah, a lot of them in California. Damn, do. damn near like sixty percent. I mean, they oh all, yeah, a ton of them do. Wow. I, I don't have the exact numbers, but no, it's no, lot. but but yeah. it's a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. So
0: if the animal has been, let's just say a deer, right, and they have just been, let's just say they have poison oak all over them, right? Like they just they've been rush, they've been bumping into oh, yeah. it, and sure. they've got the oils all over their fur. Yeah. Um, and you're having to obviously touch this animal so mm-hmm. very intimately as you yeah. as you prepare it and process it. How do you not get the poison Oak all over you? Like what do you do to avoid that? Or do you just <laughs> eat the shit sandwich and come back? Rashed right. out? Like,
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, I don't react to poison Oak, so I wouldn't know. Um, oh, lucky you. I don't, yeah, I don't know so if I uh, do
0: either. I've never had it, so I don't know, but uh, yeah,
1: but huh. I, the The way I would deal with that, if I were very sensitive to poison oak, is um, put it, donning gloves. And you may uh-huh. even have to don elbow gloves, you know, uh-huh. gloves that come all the way up to your elbow and then just, and then you have to, you know, and I'll do this um, when I skin an animal, I have two separate knives usually. Uh-huh. One knife that I deal with more on the outer surface, uh, with uh-huh. there's hair and things that are like the glands and things that I want to have involved yep. in the meat, and then um, a knife that I use on the inner surface. And that's uh-huh. the kind of stuff you'd have to do to, to um, you know, to take the measures to keep yourself separated from, create oh, a right. barrier between those kind of things. And ticks, yeah, you got ticks crawling on you, you have fleas, so many fleas, um, you know, jump yeah. They jump all over you, and I mean uh, the the um, a buck I shot last year in uh, the Big Sur Mountains. Um, I mean, there I must have come home with two hundred flea bites, and it wasn't so much because of the animal having fleas itself; it did, but yeah. the whole area there were just fleas in the bushes, and I mean, it oh, was just really yeah it can get really and, awful and where was where was that again in the big sur mountains so big like, sur, okay yeah so if you're wow. basically driving you know highway one the big sur windy beautiful yep. road and you look to the ocean and you turn your head and you look uphill like right. those are the big sur mountains so that yeah. up in there um which are actually quite intense hills they're uh, yeah. yeah. steep brushy, and it can get very gnarly windy. terrain
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Very beautiful,
0: but very rough. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So with the, I mean, I asked the question, right? Just for coming from like, you know, a health practitioner background. Right, So sure. Lyme's disease, ticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of people would be like, oh, shit. You know, like there's ticks all over you. Mm-hmm. So how do you, yeah, like how do you navigate that? I mean, do you worry about that? Do you um, take any precautions to, you know, protect yourself from mm-hmm. from the potential tick burrow? like sure just or do you just kind of yeah roll with
1: it (laughs) yeah you just have to be really conscious of it i mean the the, i don't have a lot of experience with this firsthand um i've had a ton of ticks in me luckily i've never had an issue with it um but what i would say is that those ticks that cause lyme disease you never know the tick was there when i'm dealing typically when i'm dealing with ticks I have them crawling all over me because I'm touching an animal that has them crawling all over it Um, so I'm very well aware that there are ticks everywhere so that alone gives you enough you know knowledge to just you know be conscious of of that so when you're done with the work and you've eliminated the the tick you know you've skinned the animal and all that's aside and you're now in the clear then you take your time and you just do a very clear observation to make sure that you are tick free because you know you've just had the exposure, and, right? And then you, you keep monitoring every few hours and make sure nothing feels weird, nothing's funky. You keep looking, you know, and just make sure. So that I think that alone helps a lot.
0: Yeah, and is that and, and by the tick check does that just mean like strip down naked and assess later? Like just make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Just make sure, make sure there's nothing crawling <laughs> around sure. anywhere.
1: Yeah, check the belt lines, you know, and just the the ankles and all the typical access points that you might have. Um, it, when when I'm dealing with it, it's mostly like the armpits because I'm dealing with it from the hands first, you right. know. Right. So they might crawl up your sleeve or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I've never from hunting had a tick in me. The o- only circumstances I've ever had a tick enter me is is from the times when I'm just in the woods you know yeah. unknown to me that it's actually and know. is it
0: is it safe to say that the tick? Exp- i mean right i mean technically right they could be all around uh from where you're mm-hmm. processing the animal but would you say that the, the the risk factor goes down once you've got the skin off and once you've got the the hair um off the animal in a major way yeah,
1: yeah. yeah it pretty much eliminates it yeah yeah because as soon as yeah that's where they all are as soon as you remove the hide then you're in right
0: and then when you put your—that's uh, funny—you know—the glorified, uh, you know, pillowcase. When you put the the meat in there, or the the skin, if you want to keep it, you just keep all the ticks in the bag. I mean, is that kind of like they're they're still in the fur? Is that kind of how that works?
1: Yeah, that would be the reality of it. There's a few ways to go about it, um, which I've never done. Um, luckily, the bear that I took did not have um, any parasites on it. It had some, like a bunch of like you know, vegetation knotted around in it, but it didn't have Mm -hmm. any, uh, so this was in late September and in the mountains. So it was, you know, cold and it was, it was, it was okay in that regard. Um, and that's the only, um, hide that I've kept from a, from a big animal. Um, but, and I've never done this because of the situation, but, um, you can you know hang a hide over a fire and mm-hmm. just the smoke they'll just they'll just go right away from from the hide oh right yeah they're just yeah. avoiding it right that makes sense yeah but that's one of the things you have to deal with yeah and that's why you wash the hide when you get back to wherever you can wash it right yeah
0: and out of, out of the um and maybe it's the same for uh, bear meat and deer meat but when you process an animal What's your favorite uh, piece of the mm. animal? What's the, what's the, like the most tender, or what do you
1: what do you fancy? Right, that's a really good question, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really hard one to answer because there's so many. So uh, there's there's a scale, right? You have your really tender pieces. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, to me, I think unfortunate, a lot of the um, very tender pieces are all very very mild. They almost taste mm. neutral. Um, uh huh. So that would be your tenderloin and mm-hmm. your your rear backstrap loins. Okay, uh, they're going to be your, the most tender um, and and very very mild. Uh, they have a bit of a, a, a hint of, of game, but mm-hmm. um, you could have somebody who. Um, who has an aversion to game meat or never wants to try it and you could just hand that to them and they would never have a hesitation at all. Yeah, Very mild. I like that, the gamey flavor. I like um, the differences in flavors of meat that different animals bring with different diets and habitats. Right. Uh, So what I like to find is a medium between um, the flavor of the meat uh, and the tenderness, um, and then also the diversity that you can use the meat to cook with. So what uh-huh. kind of dishes can you make with it? Right. Like the loin right. is is versatile. So the loin being the back strap, which are the two muscle groups that are along the spine. Uh, in, uh-huh. the, um, And then the tender loin, which would be like your beef, the filet mignon, right? <coughs> mm mm-hmm. um, that would be the tenderloin uh, that's along the spine on the abdominal side, so right side so, the body cavity, yeah an- on anterior the, yeah, right yep, so yeah. Uh, on yeah if you if you think about the spine and you, you think about the belly side of your spine right. right behind all the internal organs and all that right. Right. that's where there's two smaller muscles that attach to the spine those are the least used muscles and those uh-huh. are going to be the most tender that's the tenderloin um, uh-huh. the filet mignon in a beef you know <laughs> right um, those along with the with the rear um, loins which are on the backside of this uh-huh. the spine there's really only the only diversity you can get in in cuisine with those cuts is in its surroundings rather than the meat itself. You pretty much have to cook it medium rare. It does, uh, you, you, keep, you would just do an injustice if you've cooked that <laughs> in like, um, if you would braise it for a long time or you put it right. in a pot or, right, you know, right. or just something like that. You make a stew with it or something like that. It would be a complete injustice to do that with a loin um, yeah. with extract. You really have to keep it intact. As yep. you know, something that would be the equivalent of, um, say, your wrist halfway up your elbow, you know, and roughly that kind of width yep. and, you know, dimensions. You take yep. that chunk and you ha- you just have to sear that to a, a rare yep. or medium rare, and then you can add sauces and you can slice it into medallions and do you right. know add things and tr- create dishes that way. But that's the only way you really ought to cook it. You could do a carpaccio, which is straight raw. Um, mm-hmm. which I've done a number of times, which is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, you just have a very mild cut. Um, to me, the favorite cuts are are from the leg, from the upper leg, um, yeah. because they're still tender, um, not as tender, but they're still tender, and you can cook them in a bunch of different ways. Uh-huh. Um, you can cook them slower, You can, yeah, and they have more flavor, and a little bit more. Uh-huh what's called what I would call a grain. Yeah. So you have like fine grained meat, um yeah. which would be your loins. And then a bit more coarse grained meat. Like um you could compare that to um like if you had a New York strip steak, that would be like a yes. very fine grained meat. And yes. then if you had um what's that Irish uh, a brisket, right? Oh yeah brisket, a, yeah. Brisket. That would be more your coarse grained meat or yeah, f- for uh, sure. like flap steak or um Mm -hmm. something like that um uh so there's a bit more of a coarser grain to the leg meat and um you can make steaks out of that you can cook that slowly and and um you know you could braise it um and it has a bit more of that mouth feel um Mm -hmm. and um something to work (laughs) a little bit um, and it, um, it gives you an immense amount of diversity and, and it has that gamey flavor a little bit right? Uh, that, that you, know, but not uncomfortable in any way, just a, a, a hint of it, just enough right. to make you realize this is not beef or pork. So right. Yeah. Right. So though I would say the, the, um, upper leg meat would be, yeah. Like the spot very, that what you, what you mm-hmm. like. Yeah.
0: So what do you think about people? <sighs> like and this is the question right like for me the answer i have a bunch of i can list off a yes in my head like why this is good but what do you think in the larger context right of of hunting um being willing to explore this whole dynamic right getting out there doing this what do you think is is the benefit what's what's the benefit of of hunting
1: that's a great question um yeah, can can we just do like a repeat on the podcast and start with the time <laughs> yeah, wise and just right, like have right. another because um, there's uh, so many things to talk about. But to yeah. me, the yeah. most important piece to me the most important piece is conservation. And mm-hmm. what I mean by conservation is wildlife conservation is being able to support wildlife populations so so that they can thrive in their natural environments. And what's often misunderstood or forgotten or not taught is that it was, and this m- may sound controversial, but it actually isn't. It's quite factual. Hunters are actually the reason why North America has such an incredibly um, healthy wildlife diversity right now. It's in huh. in the 1900s. Um, market hunting was rampant right everybody there was no there were no seasons or tags or hey you right. can only take one animal or you know anything <clears throat> like that in the right. late 1800s 1900s um and market hunting you were allowed to just kill something and sell it right market hunting um and it was rampant and it nearly wiped out north american game species to extinction And then a few players like Teddy Roosevelt and um, uh, several others um, came in and said, wait a minute, we need to implement (coughs) some, we we need to implement some regulations to allow for these wildlife populations to come back. Let's Mm -hmm. limit this and that and right. um it was also at the same time national parks were created and it all happened all roughly sure. at the same time um so it was the and teddy roosevelt is an avid hunter and the reason actually was selfish he wanted more animals in his country so that ah. he could keep hunting <laughs> so initially, <laughs> right. it was actually kind of a selfish reasoning but um in the end it ended up being immensely Beneficial, and this North American wildlife model is now the the most successful model for wildlife conservation on the planet, hands down. There's no other country that comes close to being able to reflect the kind of rebounds we've had in wildlife. um, That that through management, careful management and conservation strategies, um, that all has been driven um initially by hunters and then now mostly by hunters and it's through um several avenues one is when i buy a license i've a hunting license i buy tags right i buy i buy two deer tags because that's all i'm allowed I, I get a small game tag i get a bear tag if, if it's applicable i get a wild pig tag always um, almost 80 percent of the money i spend for that money Goes directly into state wildlife management. So that yeah. money, 80% of that. Um, so let's say let's say I spend $300 on that money. Uh, you know, over $200 of that goes to the state, gets put into um, a funding source that biologists can then access to do surveys of wildlife and 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 uh and and management tactics and and see what kind of population threats are there and what do we need to do for that and the same goes um federally as well so the there's an act called the pittman roberts act that was um, implemented by teddy roosevelt um, where nine to eleven percent depending on what you purchase of all things that you buy that are related to hunting so that includes firearms ammunition um, actually I take it back it's not even related to hunting it's, um, it's, it's all firearms and ammunition and there's something equivalent to fishing too um, called the Dingle and Johnson Act which is the same thing, any rod and flies and hooks and things like that, um, so but for hunting you have the Pittman Robertson Act that um, takes 9 to 11% of every purchase you make related to um, firearms and hunting and I believe um, uh, things like binoculars and, you know, items like that. Don't quote me on, on, on all the periphery items, but for sure firearms. So that goes yeah. for people who are recreational <clears throat> shooters, um, home defending shooters, whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, 9 to 11 percent of that money goes federally to a fund that then allows for, um, for federal fish and game management to act on wildlife conservation. And they'll send biologists out there and they'll say, okay, a population is healthy. Um, We're allowed to take this many animals out of the um, population through hunting. So this many licenses can then be uh, issued um, without compromising the health of the population. So to me, the benefit of hunting um, is on on a very large scale associated with conservation um i really truly feel like i do my part in spending the money um to then support conservation that then helps wildlife stay healthy and it's reflected wow. you see that now we have the healthiest wildlife population um since the since before market hunting even started yeah, yeah. i mean just 20 30 years ago you could have, um, you know, there's counts of people saying like, oh man, when somebody saw a buck, they called their neighborhood, hey, we saw a buck, you know, and uh, yeah. everyone checked it out. And, and, you know, or uh, turkeys are now in every single state, or 49 right. states, not right, Hawaii. Um right, right, right. Turkeys have come back immensely. Um, you know, elk have come back incredibly well. Um, they're unfortunately still only uh, on about I want to say 15% of their natural habitat of the one yeah. they originally were before market hunting. Um, but they've come back in incredibly well. Um, deer as, as we know, are, are rebounding incredibly well. Um, so, and that's all through, um, conservation initiated by money that's funded mainly by hunters. That's and, so crazy. That's so yeah. crazy to think about. I mean, that's, yeah. That's it's a counterintuitive, link. right? But, yeah. yeah,
0: but as you're as you're explaining it, it's like you said, it's very logical. Also, so mm-hmm. that's an interesting piece to to chew on because I mean, I that's that that's news to me for sure. Um, to hear that, I mean, that's a that's a big one. I'm glad I asked that question. Sure. <laughs> like the benefit yeah, of hunting, absolutely. there's a larger um, dynamic happening outside of just right your joy or preference for for game meat. There's um, that's amazing that that's actually yeah. all part of that puzzle piece that's really really cool well so when you when you are are hunting um the other logistical piece to this that, that I'm, I'm just curious and maybe some other people are as well um in terms of rifles like what's a mm-hmm. quality rifle that you think
1: is um you know fit for the job what do you use and what have mm-hmm. you seen and what <laughs> what's good sure yeah um As far as rifles go, you really want to first ask yourself the question, what is it that you want to hunt? And Mm -hmm. um, in North America, for the most part, it's all of uh, when you're talking about larger animals, uh, larger mammals um, like the deer species, um, you're all kind of within a similar range. The exceptions would be a moose or a very large elk. Um, That would be on the upper range of the size that you have available. And, of course, if you're interested in hunting brown bear, um, then that's kind of its own category because that's an immensely large animal. Um, But uh, there are several calibers that work incredibly well. They're all roughly um, uh, the similar kind of quality, and it really is a preference thing depending on how – It might just be like what somebody told you is a better one than the other. They all do the same trick. Um, And they're essentially, they start at what's called a 270. And the 270 is um, that, so the the number itself is really just a size measurement of the projectile after it leaves the brass. So the brass, if you imagine like what a bullet, a rifle bullet looks like, looks like a little rocket ship Uh and it's made up of two parts. Um, well, it's made up of several parts, but two main parts, the brass piece and then the projectile piece. And the brass piece only holds the black powder, and the projectile is one that flies out and does the job. Right. And, and the projectile diameter is where those numbers are. If somebody says, oh, I got a 270 or whatever. So yeah. um, 270 would be the <clears throat> decimals in inches. So 0.27 inches is kind of the diameter of the back. Oh, gotcha. So, okay. From 270 upwards, you get your 270, and then you go to 300, 306, 308, and then and then from there, there's subversions of those. Um, mm-hmm. So in that caliber range, 270, and then you have like the mag, which has more black powder behind it, which means mm-hmm. that there's more um, hydrostatic force when the bullet impacts the animal. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a flatter trajectory of flight. Um, with uh, higher caliber, uh, sorry, with uh, more black powder um, and longer reach. Um, so those would be your 300 Win Mag, um, and uh, anything with Mag behind it really just means that there's more black powder. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, and um, and in those calibers, um, you can get essentially <clears throat> any rifle that can carry that, um, and and as long as it's it's made well enough, um and all of them are because they have to compete with each other, right? You can't just produce really shitty rifle it's gonna die as a brand. Uh, Then you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be having a weapon that's gonna um, operate just fine. The two big things that people often forget about are one, optics. So optics are incredibly important on a rifle. You really ought to spend twice as much on your optics than than on your rifle. Um, and the optics is the oh, like the, the, sco- scope. the scope, the scope the that scope you're on through. top. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. So the, the scope that you're mounting on top of your rifle. Um, you know, ideally, you have a thousand dollar rifle and a two thousand dollar scope, then you're set up for life. Um, it often doesn't happen like that, but uh, yeah, if you if you can get basically with optics or scopes on top of rifles. Um, you're getting what you're paying for. So the yeah. more you spend, the better the optics. Within re- you know within reason. Um, it, it reminds
0: it reminds me of photography, right? You know the camera yeah, is, yeah, is its yeah. own thing, but when you buy it, a lot of it, it's the lenses, right? Like the, it's the same same type of thing. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. What else? Is there anything else to that that you wanted to add? Yeah. Mm. The other thing I wanted to add mm. is
1: that the most important piece goes without saying, but has to be mentioned is that you're the one. Doing the firing, you have to be the one. The shooter has to be the one that's the expert. You can mm-hmm. get the highest quality rifle that you want, but uh, you have to be an excellent shooter. You have to know exactly um, how your um, how your fire sh- firearm system works um, and and how to implement it. Yep, that's the most important piece. When you where do you
0: practice rifle shooting? you know what like where do you actually do that is it i mean at a, i'm not i haven't been to a shooting range in years but is it the same yeah. same same bracket you can just go like yeah. any type of gun can be fired there
1: yeah yeah you just go to a range and um Shoot there are mm. indoor and outdoor ranges um and you know for for a rifle you're talking about distance shooting so you yeah. have to go to an outdoor range and um mm-hmm. you have to practice at minimally a 100 yards Um, right so a football field you know essentially is the distance where you're just practicing and getting it nailed down and and those are the circumstances where you're sitting on a bench and you have a very controlled environment and you can you know control the variables and you're not very emotional Mm -hmm. and heart rate can be managed very easily and you have a target out there and that's where you have to just put holes in holes right you have to like put that bullet in into a tiny, you know, you, you have to be able to feel confident that you can have a very small grouping, right? So that you can put five, right. six rounds in, into a half inch diameter. Um, yeah. That's at a hundred yards. You have to be capable of doing that. Um, otherwise, when you go out there, you're just going to be all over the place. Because it's, right. it's hard. It's way harder <laughs> like, out there.
0: And it, yeah, no kidding. And it comes back to what you said at the very beginning, right? There's a full circle here, the skill. The development of the skill. There's various things you have to be good at to yeah. to, to do this, to do it well, and to do it efficiently. Well, yeah. um, Daniel, I know we're kind of. I'm checking the time here. I know we're kind of re- running up on on our on our mark. But the last thing I want to ask you for, as a framework for people, if people are they've listened to this and they want to start, they want they want to adopt some of the hunting into their life, right? They want to take some of these <clears throat> guidelines and parameters and bring them into their life, explore it, use it where do you tell people to start are there textbooks that they should read is there like um you know more more or less like what is the (laughs) what's daniel's Mm -hmm. manual manual if you want to like get introed into the hunting world where would you tell people to start because this universe sounds pretty big and you've been doing it for many years so where do you begin so that it's not um, completely overwhelming
1: it is. It's. Uh, it's. Un- inevitably, going to be overwhelming. Um, yes. Because there is so much, and it yep. is. It is such a. It is. This is one of the reasons why I love hunting so much. There are many, but. Um. It is such an overwhelmingly large task to be a good hunter. You have to, like I mentioned, the kind of the list of things you have to be good, at. You know, like the the wilderness component. Navigating in the woods and, and understanding what it takes to be safe in the woods, cons- you know, with some survival situations considered, um, and uh, the gear that it takes to be safe in the woods and how to use that gear. Um, and then knowing how animals behave, um, knowing your your firearm, right. uh, knowing all the regulations <clears throat> and laws and, and where you can go at what time and which license right. to get when and how to apply for those. Um, and then getting out there and then when you get a game you know you get a game animal down what do you do with that Um, the field dressing and all that stuff Um, and each one of those categories um, has its own subcategories that are you know difficult. you could spend time on each one of those items Um, once when you if you want to enter that world which I encourage anybody to do. The best way to access it is with somebody who knows what they're doing. If you don't have that, you have to, you know, if you don't have that, I did not. Um, I entered the world with no knowledge and nobody know, telling me what to do. And I was stabbing around in the dark like a buffoon for years. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it uh, takes a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it, it was hard work. So if you don't have that, assuming you don't have <clears> something <throat> right. that can just give you the guidance, yeah. um, the best place to do that, to, to get out there and and uh, get familiar with hunting Um, is going to be, um, reading up on some books and the best resource that I've come across, um, that's contemporary and and up to date now is by an author called Steven Rinella. And it's just called the complete guide to hunting and fishing. Uh, is it just, no, I think it's just the complete guide to hunting. I love his show. I love his show, the Meat. Oh, uh, Meat Eater! Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a great it's a TV show. It's a great yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's an excellent book, and he talks. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks a lot about what gear to get and mm-hmm. how to. How to observe an environment so that you can find animals um, yeah. with your binoculars, and you know, just kind of basic things like that. Um, so reading up on that, and then. Finding an area that you want to hunt and sticking to that area. So, you know, let me back up. If you have good resources and you have the money to do it, go on a guided hunt. Go out there with a guide. Um, It's often uh, if you go, if you're in California, if your your listeners are are in California, um, the cheapest way to go on a guided hunt would be a pig hunt. You could probably mm-hmm. find one for seven eight hundred dollars, um, and that way you get to go out there with an expert. They can you know help you out. They can show you the ropes, um, and uh, and that's one one kind of catapulting way to just kind of jump into the whole like killing and and managing an animal after it's on the ground piece. Right. Um, that said, you have to of course already be a shooter, right? You have to understand. Um, your firearms but starting with that a good book and just reading up and just getting the yeah. intellectual piece into your brain and just right. understanding what it would take to do it um, and then finding a piece of land that you want to hunt so finding a national, uh, national public land that's a national forest <coughs> land um, could be a state park where hunting is allowed um so some kind of uh public access land that you're like okay so this is 2 hours from my house or an hour from my house I can access this and then go out there and familiarize yourself with what kind of animals are out there the trails and knowing what it takes to be in that environment um and just get out there and look for animals because nothing happens unless you know how to find animals you got to yeah. know you got to know how to find an animal, and that can be very, very difficult because most of the animals you hunt don't want to be found, and they have very, very, very high senses and um, know exactly how not to be found. All right. Um, so, that, is, that <clears throat> is a very big challenge. Um, and then, so, fi- you know, getting a book um getting out there and and uh, exposing yourself to the in, environment and the habitat of the game that you're trying to chase and then get your weapon ring get familiar right ring. that would those would be the, the first three things that I would recommend doing No that's great <clears throat> that's a great
0: baseline to start from because I think yeah. um, like you said it's inevitably going to be overwhelming I mean obviously you can do from, from from that but it's a good place for people to start should they want to orient themselves to this to this topic you know into the yeah. the, the process so well <clears throat> Daniel thank you so much for for doing this and uh, sharing your knowledge and <laughs> opening up Pandora's box so to speak because there's a ton here more than more than I thought um, which is to be expected so it was great having you and if um, yeah I would love to have you on again at some point I'm sure theres a, there's a lot of stuff we didn't touch on but um, yeah absolutely thank thanks for thank having you. me you bet, man. Anytime.
1: All right. Well, until next time. Okay. Until next time. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right.